Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord and you listening online. Good morning to you. This morning we are in the gospel according to Mark chapter 9. We will take verses 38 through 50 in a moment. Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word beginning at verse 38. Now John answered him saying, teacher... We saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Please be seated. Witness tampering, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. A witness tells what Christ has told them or what was, has shown them. The witness says, this is what I've seen. I'm a witness to what Christ has revealed to me. And for those of us who are born again, the first stop is the conviction, the truth, the love all at one time. My approach to pulpit ministry in response to our problems in life, whatever you may be going through, whatever I may be going through, the politics around us, the culture, my response to these things as a pastor is to remain focused as a witness on what Jesus has shown me, has shown his people, has shown the world through his word. Even, even when we have not gained the victory. Maybe there's a pressing need in our life. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe our legal matters. Maybe family problems, marital problems. The list goes on and on. And we wait for the Lord to answer our prayers. And he oftentimes delays. What do you do? Do you fret? Do you keep moving forward? As a pastor, the pulpit keeps moving forward. And I need to have something from the Word that tells me what to do, how to approach these things. What do you do, Pastor, when you have all these uh, unanswered prayers and all these problems going around? Well, you preach the Word. That's what you do. Paul, from prison, writing to a young pastor, said, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convict, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. In the season of joy or out of the season of joy. Whatever is going on with long-suffering, teach the Word. Stay focused on these eternal things. Be a witness. Fulfill your calling. Regardless of the corruption of government, cultural immorality, along with all of its hatred towards Jesus that is just expanding in, in, in society right now, what do, what do we do with these things? There are many biblical examples. I'm going to take this one from Daniel 6. 
Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, this was the writing that forbade Daniel to practice his faith. He went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. This was not, I'm going to defy you and start doing this in your face. This was, I'm going to defy you because this is what I do. I worship my God. And if you classify that as defiance, well, that's what you have to do. But for me, it is obedience. And I say these things because I think that many times uh, Christians expect the, the pulpit to address particular needs, to cherry pick them. Well, if God points out something that I need to say, then I will preach a topical message on that as he gives it to me. There's not a week that goes by where I do not first go to the Lord and say, what do you want me to say on Sunday? And most of the time he says, well, what you have before you in the text is just what I want to be said to the assembly that will listen to you. And so here we are. We're going verse by verse through the scripture. In season and out of season, because that's what's going to make us strong, stronger no matter what. If you do not believe that, I question your approach to your faith. The word of God is a very big deal to God. It is the mind of God. It is the voice of God. And in it, everything we need to have covered is covered. Now, in this section that we are looking at this morning as witnesses... Our Lord has been speaking against self-promotion in ministry. Remember, they were on the road heading towards Capernaum, and the apostles were arguing with themselves, who was the greatest, who was the better one of the bunch? And Christ didn't let it go by. He said, what were you guys talking about? They didn't want to answer. So he's been encouraging them to remain innocent witnesses, blameless witnesses, he told them that you've got to have that childlike innocence in ministry where you're not looking to harm others, where you're dependent upon God, not having a competitive spirit that is clawing and snarling and growling and reaching for things that it thinks it wants, but have the childlike spirit. And, of course, he picks the child up, and they all can look at the little child in his hands, and they can see the innocence personified in the child. This prompted John the Apostle to recall something that was not in line with what Christ was teaching them. John remembered that, you know, I got in the flesh on a well, all of them did, but John is the one that brings it up. We weren't very childlike when we chased a man away who was dealing with demonic things in your name. And so for John, this was an uh-oh moment when he heard Jesus speak about these things in relationship to their arguing and striving. He was convicted, and he's, he says in verse 38 now, we look at, Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. So it's not random, this statement. If you look at verse 37, and there we read Jesus' words, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Well, that prompted John to answer and say, Well, wait a minute. I've lost some of this innocence. We, we went after someone because we were protecting our territory. We weren't really thinking about you too much. We were striving in ministry in the flesh. So again, verse 38 is not random. Uh, Christ has been telling them that when you serve, you should not treat other servants as opponents. Unless they're opponents of Christ. And so he says, we forbade them. Saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. Now, John's not boasting. He's confessing a failure. It's odd that someone would be casting out demons in the name of Jesus so early before the resurrection, but there it was. And when he says again, we forbade him because he did not follow us, the apostles, they believed. They were the sole agents of Jesus, and this was a mistake. 
They did not say we stopped him because he does not follow you. <laughs> they stopped him because he doesn't follow us. And Jesus doesn't call him on that. He doesn't have to. He sees that John is saying, okay, this wasn't right. But if he wanted to, he can say, what is this us stuff? What's this following us? It's following me. And the Lord says, why don't you leave such people to me? I'll deal with these things. Now, this isn't, we'll, we'll open it up a little bit, because there are certainly times where you have to address people who aren't on Christ's side, but they're using his name nonetheless. So verse 39, but Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. Now, this is the ideal. This is not, uh, he's not talking about those who are frauds. And he says, do not forbid him, indicating that Jesus, to me, as I read it, he knew of the situation. He knew of the man. Certainly, the, the, the apostles did not have information that Christ did not have. And if Christ did not deal with them, what were they dealing with? Them? They should have brought it to him, of course. In his name, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name, under his lordship, that is. How many people say they're Christians, but they're not under his lordship? His authority does not mean, you know, they have a problem with authority. They have a problem with the authority of Jesus Christ. They have the a problem with the authority of those whom Christ has appointed to have authority. Well, those are what you call troublemakers, and hopefully they'll work it out. And if they don't work it out, it won't go well for them, and that's... What is being dealt with here? Don't mess with the witnesses of Christ. Don't mess with those who see what Jesus is doing and telling it like it is. John was a hand-picked follower of Christ. He walked with Christ. And still, he got this wrong. And Christ does not humiliate him. He just lays it out for him. Now, as far as those who do preached in the name of, and for the Old Testament, in the name of Yahweh, those in the New Testament era who preach in the name of Christ, but don't adhere to what has been captured in the Word. Well, the Bible has safeguards for us. In the Old Testament, for example, the Deuteronomy 13 just clearly lays it out. You have someone coming along, telling about dreams and prophesying, but they're not sticking to my word, then they're false prophets. And I'm allowing them to do these things to test your faith. Because you are supposed to refer to the scriptures, to my word to you. In the New Testament, we have passages such as this from Galatians, where Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then that, what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him go to hell if that's what he wants to do. Because there is no other gospel. There's no auxiliary gospel. The one we have is good enough. In Ephesians, he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. To those of us who love the word, these words mean something. They mean a lot to us because they come from God. There are instructions on how we should live. You know, we talk about sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone what? Well, it is the authority for salvation, and it is the authority for human behavior. I'm not interested in psychology from the world, especially when they put when they glaze Christian over it. Oh, I gotta accept it now. You put he himself has given some to be apostles. Prophets, evangelists, psychologists. No, he has not. And a lot of Christians get very upset at that because they don't want the pastors, they don't want the church to uphold the word. And so they seek other sources because they're not facing what they need to face the right way so their problem doesn't go away. They go to the world and look for a, a, a side order of Christ with their order and, and hope that their problems are going to be solved, and they don't get solved. He himself has given, and that's what we're interested in. In the book of Acts, we find the apostles investigating emerging ministries. Early in, the, in those days, for example, when Peter, uh, pardon me, Philip, goes to Samaria, there's this 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 
acceptance, this outburst of the faith. People are coming to Christ. And so what did the church in Jerusalem, which at that time was the hub, the, the headquarters, you could say, what did they do in response to that? They dispatched Peter and John to go up and look into this. What we're talking about is, is Jesus saying, someone who does a miracle in my name, who believes in me, is on our side. And we say to that, yes, Lord, we agree. However, there are those who use your name and they're not on your side. What do we do with that? Well, of course, the scripture says you, they have to be dealt with in the proper way. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, how the apostles are handling the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so the, uh, John and Peter go up to, where, uh, and to Samaria, where Philip was, and there they encounter Simon Magnus, the magician was interfering with the ministry, and they dealt with him. Peter dealt with him severely. Told him he was poisoned with bitterness and bound in iniquity. In other words, he said to him, you're going to hell the way you're carrying yourself right now. He was very firm. Then there were the seven sons of Sceva who, who attempted an exorcism. And the person whom they were attempting to exorcise turned and battered them. I don't mean dip them in batter. I mean beat them up. Because they were casting out demons in the name of Jesus, whom Paul talked about. It wasn't their Jesus. It wasn't their Christ. It was someone else's Jesus Christ, and they were using it sort of as a code word. And then when the church in Antioch, Syria, was bursting with Gentiles. Gentiles were coming into the church because of the preaching and the ministry of Barnabas and Paul. The church in Jerusalem again sent men to investigate, to see what was happening. Unfortunately, the men that they sent them weren't models, but, uh, but it was good that they went because it, it dragged into the light other problems that the church needed to deal with, which is Judaism. My point again is that Jesus is saying, listen, if someone is doing my work, don't go messing with them. And then we again counter with, yes, Lord, but there are many who say they're doing your work, but they're not following your word. And, of course, the Bible says then they need to be exposed. Paul warned in Acts chapter 20 in verse 29, one of the great passages of Scripture, he's on his way to Jerusalem to be persecuted for Christ, and he's warning the, the believers whom he had worked so hard to develop to disciple, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says this, also, from among yourselves, from the church that you attend, after I'm not here to stand guard on your behalf, because Paul, of course, was given to the church, he himself has given some to be. He goes on to say, And from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Messing with the witnesses. How do you, how do you draw away from Christ to me? My ministry. John, the apostle, he orders this to the church. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. While the apostles were still living, they were dealing with these people. And so there we see them upholding the scripture. The right way to the flock, appealing to their faith. Saying to those who attended their churches, I know you got problems. But you also have a mission. And you're supposed to do them both at the same time. One is not supposed to stop. Because of your mission is not supposed to stop because you've got problems in your life. You're still called to be a loving. You're still called to tell what you've seen in Jesus Christ. And so, again, uh, this is not a prohibition against validating ministry, but instructions against having the wrong spirit uh, go unchecked. It continues in verse 40, For he who is not against us is on our side. It is very basic, but we need to hear it come from the mouth of Christ. The impossibility of neutrality. You can't be neutral with Christ. Well, you know, he, he, you know he's all right. <laughs> uh, he's one of the prophets. Or, you know, there are others too. No, he's, you're either with him and against anybody else who claims to be equal with him, or you're, you're not. And Jesus said this himself. 
He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Each individual should be saying to themselves, what does that mean, gathering with Christ? Because if I'm not gathering with Christ, am I guilty of, of making a mess of things, scattering abroad? If a man is in no sense against Christ and his word, then he is for him. If someone begins to disagree with him, well, I don't think that's right, I think it was wrong, then he really doesn't believe. Our Lord warned in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so when he makes these claims, Christ does. As we look back again at verse 39, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who, verse 40, is not against us is on our side. And then couple that with Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's all tied in. It's all connected. The New Testament is inseparably connected to the Old Testament and vice versa. And we love that it is so. So we get to verse 41. He continues. He says, Forever, uh, pardon me, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It's pretty powerful. Imagine he's saying this. He says, if someone is, is, is ministering to you, being kind to you, blessing you because of me, that's pretty powerful. Imagine if I said that. Well, if somebody does a favor for you because of me, then, you know, uh, they won't lose their reward in heaven. Well, there may be lesser elements of truth in that for us, but not at the absolute as it is here with Christ. And what is this because you belong to Christ? The heart after God. The heart that, the heart that is interested in God. And what he has to say no matter what. That Daniel, when Daniel opened the window, I don't care what the world is saying. I don't care what they're going to do to me. I have this personal relationship with Yahweh, and I'm going to maintain this personal relationship with Yahweh. And if they throw me to the lions, I will probably be eaten. But it will be a meal of someone who has a personal relationship with Yahweh, and the lions will love it. Of course, that didn't happen. God protected him. We read these things in the Bible, and we love them. We're drawn to them until it's our turn to face pressure. You know, verses like this, he is, God has not given us a spirit of fear. How many Christians do not hesitate to be afraid? But of love, how many do not look to love? And of a sound mind, how many don't, how many conduct themselves as though they have lost their mind? These are questions that we cannot just ignore. In verse 41, again, because you belong to Christ, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That Paul is saying it's the Scriptures that validate it all. Take that away, you've got some serious questions. He continues, Paul does, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Something as incredible as the resurrection, Paul says, it's got to be connected to God. It's got to be part of his program. Otherwise, you run the risk of, again, being in Deuteronomy 13, where God says you're going to have people that do some extraordinary things, but if they're leading you away from me, then you're being tested, and it is the devil that is doing the testing, and we're going to find out what happens after that. James says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. So again, my point, these men were witnesses of Jesus Christ in his life. They were witnesses of the scripture as we are because they believed. And Christ is saying, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward for adhering to the things of the Messiah, of the Christ. That's rewards after life. 
for taking care of the servants of Christ. That's what this verse 41 is saying. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So John might be saying, wait a minute, I didn't give that guy a cup of cold water. I was about to give him a knuckle sandwich. But Christ now addresses it. And John says, uh, and incidentally, this is the only time in the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we hear the voice of John. Uh, Just a side note. And we get, of course, to the Gospel of John. It changes. So verse 42 continues along with all of this is connected. This entire section that we're considering this morning, that we just stood and read, uh, is all connected together. None of it is fragmented. All of it has, it started off with their self-seeking. And it's just developed around that. Verse 42 But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We could spend a whole morning just on that one. So he's going back to the lesson uh, that John interrupted with his Lord. uh, Since you mentioned this whole thing about striving, uh, we we found somebody, you know, and and now, now Christ is returning Back to what he was saying before John had uh, made the Lord aware of what they had said to the person who was casting out demons. And so Christ goes back to the innocence. But whoever causes one of these little ones. Here's this picture of not only innocence, but harmlessness. Very severe when we consider, as we move forward, the defenseless. Hostilities today are hurled at believers largely because we follow Christ and not them. We care nothing for their policies that violate God's word. For example, the murder of the unborn. Well, if they don't care about the innocent unborn, how, you don't get any more innocent as a human being and harmless as the unborn. And if they don't care for the unborn, They're not going to care for me. They're not even going to care well for each other. And so I should not be surprised that I meet with those who are confrontational because the gospel comes along and says, no, this is the gospel, basically. You're going to hell for your behavior. But the good news is you don't have to go. What is offensive about that? Well, the part about that I've got to change my lifestyle to line up with Jesus Christ, whom they don't believe in, because they want to do what they do. And once you wound their petty feelings, you make an enemy out of people in the world who are passionate about doing the things that Christ forbids. All right, we accept that. Again, in these days we live in, we never thought, well, I don't know about never, but... Uh, Persecution does seem to be ramping up. Why don't they just come and arrest me and get it over with then? You know, there's a part of me that just, just wants to charge, you know, and not wait for it. All right, let's provoke this thing. Uh, but that's not the right spirit. The right spirit is to do what the witness does. We assemble, we worship, we pray, we encourage each other, we adhere to the word, we preach Christ every chance we get. And if the world does not like that, it's too bad. That's our message. That's Christianity. We're not intending to be rude. But because Satan has blinded them and they opt to do nothing about that blindness, they are guilty. Jesus said it this way in John 9. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. The point is, once you, uh, we have the gospel, and once we share it, their guilt is on them. Or the opportunity to be saved. John chapter 15. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Because he has spoken. And we deliver the word. We take these moments of Christ dealing with unbelievers in his time. And we apply them to us dealing with unbelievers in our time. It is so hard. It's so difficult to get someone to see the light. I mean, no matter how many screwball things they do, how much they make a ruin of themselves, 
You just say, listen, it's just one step towards Christ could change all of this for you. And instead of doing that, they vilify us. First John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What does that mean? The truth is not in me. What is the consequence of not having the truth in me? Is I become a liar. I become a liar before the God of creation, before the throne of God. I become someone who is dishonest in the presence of God. What is he supposed to do with that? What is a pure God supposed to do with someone who refuses the evidences that's laid before them? Are we surprised about the fraudulent, you know, hysteria that has blanketed the planet for the first time since Babel? The entire planet has been forced to lockstep. There's nowhere you can go where someone is not looking for you to wear a mask. Nowhere on earth. How did they do this? You wait till the chip comes. Wait till the Antichrist says, you know what? Now you're going to get the chip. And if you don't, It's not going to be just denying you service. They're going to kill you. We see it happening right here in front of our eyes to this day. What are we supposed to do? Stand firm, preach the word in season. We We have nothing else to give the world worth giving them. They've got everything else. Those destroyers who darken the halls of learning those professors, and this is, this is an interesting thing. You, 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 you can't miss that the universities are spewing out anti-Christianity, anti-scriptures, and yet there are Christians running to their defense. Why are you picking on them? Fine, I'll pick on you. You're going to defend them like that. They won't be picking on you. They'll be dealing with you. They sit in the seat of the scornful. How many Christians, how many children are, grow up in Christian homes, go off to universities just to become unbelievers because of their professors? People who they look to learn things from. They learn how to sit in the seat of the scornful. Same with the seminaries. Almost all the seminaries are corrupted. If you ask me, name one that's not, I couldn't do it. I know there's got to be one out there somewhere. There's always a remnant with the Lord. And then they send out their disciples to the workplace to challenge those who dare say, I don't believe in those things that disagree with the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, if you mess with a little child's faith, it would be better if someone tied a transmission around your neck and threw you into the sea. It would be better if someone tied a washing machine around your neck and threw you into the ocean. You see, he's saying, listen, let me tell you something. You want to mess with the faith of the innocent, whether they're little children or adults. If you mess with their faith, it's not going to go well for you. You will drown in judgment. And so he's laying this language out to them that you can never forget. And yet there are people who still do this. They know this verse and they still mess with the faith of the innocent. So again, how many university professors, especially them, have signed up for this particular judgment? How many parents have signed up for this particular judgment? How many people in the workplace have signed up because they go against Jesus Christ and they want to attack the faith of others and cause them to stumble and fall flat on their face? And how many fall for it? The undoing of the faith. Romans 14, verse 13, resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now, he's talking about Christians. How much worse it is in the world when they're trying to put stumbling blocks in the way of believers. And they do, and believers fall for it. First Corinthians, uh, Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I don't know. I, I think this congregation, from what I can understand, I think we get it. But I, I also know there's a lot that don't get it. They don't see how complete it is, how necessary it is not to back away from this Scripture alone idea. Some of you have to learn the hard way. The younger ones, 
You just can't take the word of, of the righteous for it. You've got to go out there and make a, rest, a wreck of your life and then come back and take. I mean, hopefully you come back and then take it. Skip that step. Be righteous from the beginning. What's this talk about depression in youth? Am I missing something? I was a youth once. I had a lot of anger. I didn't have too much depression. There's <laughs> a lot of anger, though. And the Marine Corps just poured gasoline on that. <laughs> you think you're angry now? <laughs> you wait till these drill instructors get through with you. And then you wait till you get out into the fleet. You're going to really be an angry man. And I was. So, looking back at that life, so what, what would I have done if I had just adhered to Christ? I was raised to love Jesus Christ. Why did I walk away? Many of you men and women, you are Naomi's to other men and women. And, of course, make it fit. I mean, the women are Naomi's to the girls, not them. You become Samuel's for you men to other men. You become this influence. And that's what we were looking at, the life of Saul. Saul had Samuel and he threw it all away. He threw it just away to the point where he would have killed Samuel. And so you young men, you young women, why not be bold in Christ? Why not take that energy and be bold in Christ? Why not get the answers? One of the first steps to growing is submission to the right authorities. The world gets this. I mean, I mean, I remember in the, you know, in the military up on the walls, body and spirit, I surrendered whole to harsh instructors and received a soul. Well, I don't agree with that, but I understand the mindset and why it was on the wall. Because they understood that if they were going to make progress, submission was necessary. Well, we're, we in Christ are supposed to know that before them. And we're supposed to know it better. And that's why when we get to the end of this, uh, this verse, as we stood and read a moment ago, Christ will end it with, have peace with one another. There is a hierarchy. There's nothing wrong with that. There is a chain of command in life. There's nothing wrong with these things. If the leaders be noble leaders, these are very good things for, for all of us. And so when Jesus says it would be better, again at verse 42, for him, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, that should make anybody say, well, I want to make sure this is not what's going to happen to me. Luke 10, verse 16. He who hears, you hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. There is a chain. There is a link to the throne of God. And you can either be on that link, part of that link, or not of it. When I think about the youth here, you are 13 years old and up, and you're in the sanctuary. Do I have to say, do you understand what I'm saying? Because I happen to think it's very simple. I go out of my way to keep the syllables short in a language that everybody can understand. When my son was three or four years old, instead of reading him about, I don't know, children's stories, I go verse by verse with him. And he understood it all because it was my responsibility to get him to understand it all at the time he was reading, uh, as I was reading these things. And I would read right through the Gospel of John. And when I got to words that I knew he wouldn't understand or ideas and concepts, I'd either move past them or explain them. I think that the word of God is very understandable. And as far as you hearing the pastor preach, I don't look at anybody when I preach. I look at the corners of the room. I, I mean, it would be terrible. <laughs> It'd be terrible. It'd be talking about adultery or something like that. I'm looking right at somebody. <laughs> so don't go think that I'm picking you out. Maybe because I wear these spectacles, you can't tell where my eyeballs are focused, but I'm telling you that the corners of the room. Because I want you to get God's word. You won't have an excuse. You won't be able to go out into the world and say, well, I never heard that before. I didn't know God said that. No, it will be the other way around. You heard it. You had a choice. You were encouraged by people who love and cared for you. What are you going to do with that? Oh, I'll have one millstone, please. You go have it. I almost had. I had one lugged around for years. When Christ, it was like the, the Pilgrim's Progress. He had that burden on his back. Well, I had that transmission tied around my neck. Speaking of which, we've got time. I can get through the rest of this pretty quickly. 
there's a story about these three teams. And they're walking around, and they see this transmission out in the field. And they pick up the transmission. First, they come across a well, an old well. And they see this transmission. Let's throw the transmission in the well. So the three of them get the transmission up, and they lug it over to the well, and they drop it in. And out the corner of their eyes, they see this goat running towards them faster than they've ever seen a goat or any other animal run in their lives. Right into the well. And they're scratching their heads. And the farmer, they see a farmer coming. And the farmer says, hey, you boys see my goat? They say, mister, you won't believe it. Your goat came running past us right into that well, running faster than any animal we've ever seen run before. The farmer said, that's impossible. He was chained to a transmission. (laughs) So, you think the three dummies would have noticed the chain? That's how we are in life. When when we're young, we don't notice things. It would cause damage. (laughs) The poor goat running as fast as he could, of course. He's being towed under. Well, anyway... I didn't, I didn't intend to tell that joke. I've told it before, and I love telling it. Maybe you'll get it again next week. We can all laugh. Well, anyway, uh, this again, not disconnected. He says, if your hand, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Okay, he's just upped everything with this kind of talk. Everything has gotten more serious at this point. Uh, this, uh, if your hand causes you to sin. Of course, that's a vehicle for the heart to, to get the deed done. It's an outward thing that is operating on the strength of something that's inside. This is still central to being right with Christ. It has other applications, but it's all connected. And he's saying, if you're right with me, if you believe in me, That's one thing. If you don't believe in me, whatever is keeping you from not believing in me, you need to cut that thing off. If you want to get into heaven, you've got to start severing some things from your life. That is the main point. There's other applications, and you can read them in your study Bibles. But this is the application that I see standing out as we're considering this. Otherwise, I have to fragment it from what he's been talking about, and I see no room for that. He's making a distinction. And this is a big distinction. Everything in the preceding verses had to do with tampering with a witness. He says, cut it off. Take radical measures. It's better to cause yourself fleshly pain, not getting what you want, and that's pretty tough, um, than spiritual judgment. Now might be a time to bring up Thomas Cranmer, who was a reformer in the 1500s. And he is one of the Oxford martyrs. There were three men, Hugh Latimer, uh, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer. And these men were all, uh, I think the youngest was in the mid-50s, or others were in their 60s. And they were burned at the stake, each one of them. They were part of the reformers in England during the reign of Bloody Mary. And Cranmer, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. But he was against the Pope. Well, he recanted. He said, okay, I'm not against the Pope anymore. I'm not against the Mass. He, he, he wrote this out and signed it. Well, he saw what happened to his buddies. They made him watch as he bur- they burned Ridley and, and uh, Latimer at the stake. And they made him watch. And they imprisoned him. They put a lot of pressure on him to break him. And after he signed, okay, I, I, I don't resist you anymore, they said, oh, we're going to kill you anyway. We're going to let you have your last public statement, submit your sermon to us, read it out, and then we're going to kill you. Illegally, this was done, but it was done. Anyway, he he makes his public statement and his prayers, and then towards the end, he renounced his renouncing. (laughs) He he said, you know, I take it back. I, I am not on the same page. You're going to kill me anyway, so let me tell you what I really think, that I should have done it the first time, but I cowered under the pressure. But now I have a chance to redeem myself. And he said, as for the Pope, I refuse him. He's Christ's enemy and the Antichrist with his false doctrine. Well, that didn't help. They, they, they snatched him out of the pulpit when he started speaking these things. And they caught him off to where six months earlier, these other two men were burned at the stake. 
And he had said that he would put that hand that signed these recantations of the faith. He said, I'm going to put that hand in the fire first. And that's precisely what he did as he was burning at the stake. He yelled out, that unworthy hand. And his last dying words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As it was with others who were being uh, murdered by uh, under the henchmen of, of Bloody Mary. Anyway, we're talking about if your hand causes you to sin. And, and Cranmer uh, illustrated that for us literally, in, uh, just straight out. His hand caused him to sin. It was what? It was a mistake. It was wrong. And he repented. And so Christ says, continuing in verse 43, it is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands. This is logical. If you believe in the spiritual world, uh, the Lord is asking us to consider painful obedience. But he's saying to the unbeliever, it is better for you to cut off those things that keep you from getting right with me. That's the main thrust of this. And he uses the, he says, having two hands to go to hell. That Greek word there, Gehenna. It comes from the Hebrew. It's a translation of the Hebrew, uh, Valley of Hinnom. And Christ uses the word 11 times for hell. James uses it once. It doesn't show up from anyone else. It's a metaphor for the wrath of God. And Christ is telling us, listen, Satan hates humans. And he, you should expect him to do what hurts humans. God loves them. You should expect God to do what the loved, to do what would, you would expect from someone who loves them. And so he says, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Hell and eternal fire here are used interchangeably for the same thing. So we know that hell is a real place. And it is uh, in contrast to eternal life. But there's more that comes out of this. In verse 44, he says, Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. He's quoting Isaiah 66, and he's going to quote it three times. And he's quoting it three times for emphasis. You say, Pastor, you're repeating yourself. Well, so did Jesus. Here he is repeating himself. Because it is that important. Because he feels that if he doesn't repeat it, three times on this subject, that somehow his message is going to be lost on the ears of his listeners. The fire and the worm. Of course, they are not literal, because a worm could not endure the fire. I mean, it's just this is metaphor. Uh, together, they depict an eternal hell. It is eternal, it is gnawing, it is horrific, and it is the state of consciousness for those who do not believe in Christ, who have rejected him, who have heard the gospel message and said, I reject it. Uh, God has no right to those people to dictate terms. They can dictate terms to God. And that's what idolatry is. Idolatry says, I don't want to hear what God says about himself. I want to tell God what he is. So I'm going to make this little man with a goat head or something and say, that's what my God is. And God is going to say, well, that's kooky, but okay. Uh, it's going to be a punishment for that. Second Peter 3, verse 9, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's our message. And the world tampers with that, tries to make you afraid to say that. Any of you afraid to say that to somebody if you get into a conversation in the workplace? Any of you afraid to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to heaven? You've been tampered with. You're a witness that's been tampered with. Now you say, I am afraid, but I do it anyway. Well, they, you've overcome the tampering. So Paul writes, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. We persuade them because there is a terror, verse 45 now in Mark 9. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. And so if you're not a believer, it's, it's better for you to take steps to become a believer and cut off those things that lead you down the wrong path. Thus the foot, the metaphor of the foot, where you stand. Um, verse 46, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. This is the second time, and it refutes annihilation. There's a teaching that goes around that the unbelievers will be annihilated. That's not what this is saying. 
This is saying it's ongoing. It doesn't stop. Uh, otherwise, I mean, if the worst thing I had to worry about is I wouldn't exist anymore, where would be the incentive to obey God? Uh, there would be no punishment. If they are tormented, then they are not annihilated. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Does anybody want me to apologize for these things? Do any of you want to say, that's a little harsh, Pastor. Okay, let me mark it out of my Bible, and you mark it out of your Bible. Well, I'm not marking it out of mine. I will not stand before God and say, you know what? You needed to be edited. And so I took out these things that I didn't care for. Because I want to live my life my way. What's it to you? you know, if, you've, if that's your approach to eternity, uh, then you're going to go in whole to a judgment that won't stop. Verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. What did you learn in church today? After hearing Jesus say these things. You met Peter going to bed and his wife. He says, so what was the Lord talking about? Well, he said, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. She wouldn't forget him hear, hearing him say that. This is a very this is shock and awe truth. None of this is to be taken literal as far as the hand and the eye and the foot. But it's metaphor. Because if you pluck out your right eye, as Jesus says, you still have your left eye to sin with. If you cut off your right hand, you won't have another hand to cut off your other hand. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just, it's, that's not the solution. Who would care for a maimed society? A bunch of people walking around blind and, and maimed. It's not literal. The righteous look at this and say, this is severe, uh, but I'm not too concerned. Why? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They've, they've hacked off the flesh. They've cut off the foot and the hand of the flesh. They are now lining up with Christ. Salvation is a gift to the guilty. That's what salvation is. And Christ says, I know you're guilty. And I also know this, that you just knowing what not to do is not enough to keep you from doing it. You're still going to sin. So, I'm going to forgive you in such a way that Satan can't get to you. That as a Christian, now it's not an endorsement to sin, because the love of Jesus Christ will compel you to fight such feelings. But the fact is that there is a real temptation that costs. David and Bathsheba is just one of many stories. Samson, the life of Samson, is yet another. The blood of Jesus Christ washes it all away from the believer. Daniel chapter 3 illustrates this. The three men that were cast into the fiery furnace, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the king's counselors together. When they saw that these men whose bodies, the fire, had no power, the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. They were in the fiery furnace. They didn't even smell like smoke when they survived it. That's going to be us in heaven. This life is a fiery furnace for us, loaded with temptations and failures. And yet, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from the smell of the smoke, from the, from the evidences of temptation and failure. That's what makes our faith so so powerful. Verse 40, I'm going a little late here. Let me speed up. That's because of that joke you, you were begging for. <laughs> Verse 48, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Uh, so much for indiscriminate rest in peace, brother. Well, it depends. I mean, you're going to rest in peace if, he's, if he walks with Christ. And the world hates that. They hate it until they repent. Um, I can understand. I can understand them rejecting Christ. I cannot understand continuing to reject Christ when everybody... Um, when the evidence is so astounding. Verse 49, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. In other words, no one goes through life without testing. Everyone will be seasoned by fire, the fires of temptation. What is the greatest temptation? To not believe in Jesus Christ, to reject him, to say it's not so. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Which is what Christ is doing here, reasoning with them. And so that's the contrast. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice. There's a contrast there. Everyone is tempted, but not everyone brings a sacrifice that is acceptable. Uh, Just ask Cain, because Abel brought the one that was acceptable. Jesus said to him, speaking to the thief on the cross that submitted to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If that guy can get in by just receiving Christ, and anybody can get in by just receiving Christ. He was more than a thief. He was a full-blown outlaw. And he surrendered. It came down to a choice. And that man severed his hand, his foot, and his eye to get into the kingdom. He cut himself up. His rights to himself were waived, and he gave them to Christ. Proverbs 18.10. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous run into, and they are safe. Everyone is tested, but not everyone brings a sacrifice that is seasoned with salt. And that's in line with Deuteronomy 2.13. You can look that up. We don't have time. Closing now, verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Salt is a metaphor here. And metaphor is flying all over the place with Christ. Because the lessons would stick that way. As we do when we talk to little children. We try to tell them stories in a way that it sticks with them. Well, that's what Christ did. Salt, of course, it resists rot and decay. And Jesus is saying, resist, resist the devil, resist the flesh, resist the world. We know that from the rest of the scripture that he has authored through his servants. Saltless life. What is that good for? Salt can't be reseasoned. The only way I know that you can literally make salt flavorless is if you overwhelm it. (laughs) You know, one speck of salt in a bucket You won't even notice it. It's overwhelmed. And that's the point that Christ is making. Salt is good. It's not supposed to lose its flavor. It's not supposed to be overwhelmed. You're supposed to have this resistance towards those things that are not wholesome and and correct. However, when you're young, you've got all of these hormones flying around. You want to do things that Christ said, don't do this. It's going to be bad for you in the long run. And when you're young, you know, you just, you, you can, you just, even when you get old, I mean, it's not like, there's a lot of old dummies too. I mean, it, and, but there are a lot of righteous old people and there are a lot of righteous young people also. You say, Pastor, you sound harsh. Who's got time to slow it all down? I'm, you know, what do we got to wrap a bow around every comment? You can't do it. Well, um, I'm out of time. And uh, have salt in yourself, he says at the bottom of verse 50. Uh, that is life against a corrupt culture. My pastor liked to say any dead fish can swim downstream or float downstream. Uh, it takes a live one to go against a current. And you younger believers, as you face the world, if they're trying to lure you in, go against them. Learn how to enjoy serving Christ. There is a joy in serving him. And have peace with one another. And that goes back to their argument that started the whole thing. They didn't have peace with one another when they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. You imagine two people out in the fellowship hall after service arguing about who's going to be the greatest servant in the church. All right, let's pray. Our Father, uh, these words from your scripture... You uh, make an emphasis on being right with you. You also emphasize on being right with each other. We need to hear these things because all of us are susceptible to disobedience, to promoting ourselves, to getting it wrong. But we are also, we also have the capacity to get it right. And we do you're listening this morning and you've never opened your heart to Christ, you have within you the capacity to be right with God. He has made it this way. You have space in your heart for Christ to fill your heart with His Holy Spirit. 
but it, it has to be by consent. You, you have to want it. You have to say to you, you have to invite the Lord to act upon his promises when it comes to salvation. If you have not opened your heart to Christ, then you may still be whole in your sin, but barred from heaven. To overcome this, you need to repent. You need to turn around and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I come to you and you alone to be forgiven because I have broken your commandments because you're the one that died for me. No one else was worthy, only you. And you rose again to demonstrate your power over these things. And I give my life to you right here, right now. And I ask that you would forgive me and receive me. And from this day forward, be the Savior of my soul and the Lord over my life. I give it to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not hesitate to share it with one of the pastors if they're in the church and if listening online. And may they call into the church and make their confession public. These things we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.